We turn to Luke chapter 1. The Gospel according to Luke chapter 1. We'll read the first 25 verses of this chapter and then focus on verses 15 through 17 that talk about the promise of the coming of the Messiah, of the forerunner of John the Baptist. Luke chapter 1. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia, And his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name, Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And they had no child, because that Elizabeth was barren. And they both were now well stricken in years. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, His lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife well stricken in years. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God. And I am sent to speak unto thee, and to show thee these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb, and not able to speak, until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. And the people waited for Zacharias, and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak unto them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. For he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. And it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the day wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. 
we take as our text verses 15 through 17. The angel's words here to Zechariah. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Beloved our Lord Jesus Christ, in the midst of the darkness of a world given over to sin and unbelief and self-righteousness, God sent his Son. This was a wonder of God's grace. God sent Jesus Christ as the light, the light that shone in the midst of a world of darkness to bring salvation and peace and hope to his church. Before sending his Son, God sent a forerunner. The forerunner was the one who would prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. And the fact of a forerunner being sent demonstrates in even greater measure that salvation is all of grace. That God would prepare not only for the coming of his son, but that he also would prepare the people for his coming. From a human perspective, that coming of John the Baptist was impossible. And that's what our text sets forth. And we're familiar with that. John and John's parents, Elizabeth and Zacharias, were old. They were beyond the years of childbearing. And yet God now comes to Zacharias and tells him that he and Elizabeth will have a baby. Now John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. God ordained that his coming would be this wonderful way, this miraculous way, born when they were old in order to demonstrate this was God's work. And God gave them faith to know and to see the significance, the meaning of their child and his work that he would perform. Now our text constitutes the words of the angel to Zacharias about that significance. Likely Zacharias would die before he would see his son able to perform this work. But it would be apparent from the very beginning that this was a special child, that he was one set aside by the Lord, set apart for God's service, and that his greatness would be such that earthly fame wouldn't be that which characterized him, but rather the work that God had given him. And we know that his appearance was such that He came as one wearing a coat of camel hair with a leather girdle. Remember what he ate? Locusts, grasshoppers, and wild honey. By his appearance, he was different. He demonstrated that he stood apart from the religious leaders and the religious leadership of that day. But his greatness would be in how God would use him to prepare the way for the Savior. As he came preaching, And preaching especially two things, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We look at the forerunner, noting the darkness of the time in which he came, the message that he was to bring, and finally the promise that he proclaimed. First of all, the darkness. The prophets in the Old Dispensation, in the Old Testament, prophesied of the coming of the light. 
the one who would dispel all the darkness, and the one who would bring about the wonder of salvation. The last prophecy occurred some 400 years prior to the current situation in Israel. Malachi had closed that prophecy of the Old Testament, and the words of our text are actually quoted from Malachi chapter 3. As Malachi spoke of the wonder and the glory and the greatness of the one who had come. Now during that 400 years, much progress had been made in religion, but not for good. This was a time period that was characterized by apostasy from the truth. It was a time period that was characterized by persecution for God's people. And it's important to know this history of the church of God and Jesus Christ. If we're going to understand the history of Jesus Christ, we need to understand the setting and the time period that characterized his entrance into the world. The New Testament opens with things that were never heard of in the Old Testament. So that all of a sudden now, suddenly, we read of chief priests, we read of scribes, of Pharisees, of Sadducees, doctors of the law, we read of synagogues, Herodians, the Sanhedrin. All of these are new to the New Testament. The question then is, when did they come about? Was this a positive development with regard to the truth? Now, there are many who are looking for the coming of the Messiah, but they looked for him who would return Israel back again to her independent state. Under the Maccabees, during that time period between Malachi and Matthew and Luke, there had been a time when the Jews had been self-ruled by these men called the Maccabees. Now they were under the rule of Rome, and they looked forward to the time when the Messiah would come deeming him as the one who would restore that self-rule again in Israel. Now Judea was compelled to pay tribute to Rome. They chafed under that. The sovereignty of the Jewish state had come to an end. And the majority of the people were looking for a Messiah who would restore that independent state again to the Jews. The faithful, during this time, went to the temple in order to offer up sacrifices They went to the temple for the celebration of feasts, but then they went to the synagogue for instruction in God's word. The synagogue was a building that was generally found in every village or town, erected on the highest ground in that town, and it was set up in such a way that when they went in and they knelt down, they would be kneeling in prayer facing Jerusalem. Likely the tabernacle, or the Like the tabernacle, it was divided into two sections with a veil, so that there was an area in front of the veil and then an area behind the veil. And behind the veil was an ark with a copy of the law. In front of the veil were the chief seats that the Pharisees would fight over. They wanted to sit in those chief seats. In Matthew 23, verse 6, talks about that. The fact that the Pharisees would fight over the chief seats in the synagogue. There was always in the synagogue a silver lamp that was burning and an eight-branched candlestick that was lit, especially during the time of major festivals. In the center of the building, there was a raised platform on which the teacher would stand or sit in order to read scripture and then to explain. Often he would sit down then to explain it according to Luke 4 verse 20. All around that raised platform, there would be seats so that The people would sit down, attentive to the leader. Often the 
women were segregated from the men, so that the women sat on one side, the men sat on the other side. The worship that took place in the synagogue was characterized by the singing of psalms, prayers that were offered up, reading of the law, the reading of the prophets, and then an exposition of what was read. So that through the services of the synagogues, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures and the law were being preserved in Israel among the Jews. The Gentiles were even brought in, and some Gentiles would join in the synagogue worship, learning and growing in their understanding of the Old Testament scriptures and their understanding. Much of this synagogue worship was preserved in the New Testament worship of the church, as the church deliberately maintained much of those elements, transitioning then from the synagogue worship into the worship of the New Testament church. Increasingly, those synagogues and the temple, we're familiar with what the temple was, that was where they brought their sacrifices, increasingly they were being taken over by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, who were the Pharisees and the Sadducees? The Pharisees were a sect that, to their credit, promoted the law, and they promoted the Old Testament scriptures. However, their fundamental teaching was that man was saved by the works of the law, by his own obedience to the law. One would earn eternal life through his own good works. They were guided by oral tradition as well, so that in addition to the scriptures, they held to oral tradition that was passed on from father to son and from generation to generation of the law and the prophets. Oral tradition that sometimes contradicted with the word of God. But they held that oral tradition in high regard. The Pharisees were marked by a strong messianic expectation. They were looking for the coming of the Messiah, and they were eagerly desiring his coming. They looked for a Messiah who would restore the glory of David's kingdom. One who would drive out all the foreign oppressors, and one who would restore Israel then to a grand and glorious earthly kingdom. That was the desire of the Pharisees. The most significant aspects of their theology became that works righteousness, that free willism, that man can save himself. And by keeping the law faithfully enough, man then can earn entrance into the kingdom of God. The Pharisees controlled most of the worship within the synagogues, and they tainted then the synagogue worship and the messages of the synagogue with that lie. The Sadducees, on the other hand, also rose up during this period of time. And the Sadducees were more prominent among the wealthy. They were more focused on doctrine, not so much on the law and on the works of the law. And they would take pride in arguing fine points of doctrine, rejecting oral tradition, denying significant doctrines of Scripture. They denied the resurrection. They denied any reward, any kind of punishment after death, believing that after death, a person just ceased to exist. The soul died with the body. No afterlife, no heaven, no hell. The Sadducees also held to the error and the heresy of the free will of man. And the Sadducees now were increasingly controlling most of the temple worship so that the synagogues were ruled by the 
Pharisees, the Sadducees now, the temple worship. And increasingly, their errors then were being promoted among the chief leaders of the temples. Within both institutions, then, the temple and the synagogue, the doctrine of free will, of salvation by works righteousness, was being promoted, along with the idea of an earthly kingdom, that the Messiah would come in order to establish an earthly kingdom. The temple of Jerusalem still stood, now, however, as a testimony to that self-righteousness and to that idea of the selfishness of the priesthood, which we looked at briefly this morning. Those who came to bring their offerings, for the most part, did so in mockery against God's institution. It was not being performed in accordance with God's will or God's word. The house of God, in a very real way, was turned into a den of thieves. And that's the way Jesus would find it. So that, in a matter of a few years, as Jesus now is interacting in the temple, he's filled with indignation indignation and wrath as to the way in which the Sadducees especially had corrupted the temple worship. As he comes into the synagogues in his ministry, he confronts then the errors of the Pharisees. And he takes occasion often to sit in that position where he could then relate the meaning of those Old Testament passages. And that becomes an open opportunity for him to promote the truth of the gospel. Now we must note that among all the sects then and all the leaders of the Jews, including the common people, there was this expectation for the coming of the Messiah. From the earliest period of their history, the Jews were always a people of the future. They were always looking to the deliverance that would come from the Messiah. And as they studied the Old Testament scriptures, they knew that there was a Messiah that would come. And that expectation grew during the 400 years of darkness. They looked for an extraordinary deliverer, someone who would come to bring victory and glory to the Jews. And even though the prophets had talked about shame, they talked about suffering, the prophets talked about the coming of the Savior, the Messiah, more in spiritual terms, increasingly they didn't pay attention to any of that. They just paid attention to the victory, the glory, the prominence that would be indicated by this Messiah. And so blinded they were to this earthly notion that the Messiah would come for them as Jews, and that he would serve the well-being of a nation. They were looking for a mighty conqueror, a great king, one who would be sent out to execute terrible judgment on all the enemies of the Jews, who could finally bring the Romans down, who would bring all of their enemies to destruction, and who would raise up then the Jews to their position, rightful of glory and honor in the midst of the known world. Many were even of the position that Elijah was going to come back. And they were seeking and praying for the return of Elijah and all of his majesty, that he would herald this great and glorious king and his coming. Now, even though there was so much disagreement among these sects religiously, yet that which they had in common was a common desire for the coming of the Messiah and an expectation that he would be born in Bethlehem, that He would be David's son, that he would sit on the throne of David, and that he would establish an everlasting kingdom in which some of them would occupy positions of honor and esteem within that kingdom. 
Not many were looking for the Messiah as a spiritual leader. They were not looking for one who would deliver them from their sins. God now sends John the Baptist to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. What a tremendous task is placed upon him. Coming into this darkness, this world of self-righteousness, this world that's looking for one who would merely be an earthly leader and an earthly king. John the Baptist now is sent by God in order to bring the light in the midst of darkness, to alert the Jews to the true nature of the Messiah, one whom God would send for salvation. So what is his message? The angel here comes to Zacharias and tells him that he will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John is sent to prepare the hearts of the people for the Messiah. He was to be the forerunner. He would stand at the door of the kingdom of heaven, but he would not be able to go in. He would not live long enough to do that. But he stood on the threshold of this new order of things and the marvelous changes that were going to take place so that now they would hear about the fulfillment of the law. They would hear about the one who would work faith in their hearts by regeneration, who would give them new life. They would read about the coming of the spirit that would lead them into the truth and would guide them. They would hear about all the fulfillment of the promises that had been laid out in the Old Testament. The Old Testament tree about to be cut off, be cut down through the fulfillment of Christ fulfilling the law and the prophets. Now our text stresses the way in which John would prepare that way for the people. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Verse 17. Again, that's a quote from Malachi. Malachi is quoting, or Luke here is quoting Malachi. And Malachi was speaking of the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah. Was John Elijah? Of course he was not literally Elijah. And John himself would have to testify of that in John chapter 1, verse 21, when he was asked, are you Elias? Are you Elijah? He said, no, he wasn't Elijah. But figuratively here, he's referred to as Elijah. Even as Jesus called him that repeatedly throughout his ministry. And the idea is this, that the spirit and the power of Elijah were seen in John. Now who was Elijah? Elijah was the greatest of all the prophets. And now John is set forth as the one who would epitomize that greatness. John displayed the boldness of Elijah. Now what was the boldness of Elijah? You remember when Elijah entered into his ministry, he came to Ahab, all of a sudden appearing to Ahab and telling him it's not going to rain. And then he was gone. How Ahab sought after Elijah. And then remember the next opportunity he finally had to have contact with Elijah. And what was Elijah's request? Let's gather at Mount Carmel. And we're going to discern who is God. Is God God or is Baal God? Elijah stood against all of Israel with a powerful message. Jehovah, he is God alone. 
And that was in the context of Israel thinking, we can serve God and we can serve Baal. We're able to have both. They needed to hear salvation is through Jehovah God alone. And so Elijah was willing to stand over against all of Israel, over against Ahab and Jezebel, over against all of the Baal prophets, and he was willing to testify salvation is through God alone. Even though he knew that would result in them hating him, despising him, and even chasing him down and pursuing him for his life. Now John enters onto the scene. And the boldness of Elijah is seen in John in that now John stands over against all Israel with the message, salvation is through Jehovah God alone. Salvation is not by the works of the law. Salvation is not of men. Salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. And he testified then to the fact that the problem was their sin. And they needed to turn from that sin and repent. And that the only way of salvation would be in that way of repentance. The Jews felt they were worthy. They were the children of Abraham after all. They didn't have to do anything. They were worthy of the kingdom. They would have a place in the kingdom. And now John is to come and say, no, you are not worthy. You do not have a place in that kingdom. Those who have entrance into the kingdom are those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior from sin. They are those who confess their sins, who cry out to him for repentance and know him to be their spiritual Savior and Lord. They need to hear that salvation was by grace alone, through Christ alone. And that's the bold message now with which John the Baptist confronts the people. Now that boldness is seen in our text in that he's going to be called a Nazarite. The essence of the law of a Nazarite was a total lifelong consecration to Jehovah God. He was consecrated to the special service of God. A Nazarite was set apart for life. So that this was his life calling. And he had to be willing in every situation he found himself to stand for God over against the wickedness and the rebellion that was around him. Now especially three external things, as you children are aware, characterized a Nazarite. He couldn't have wine or strong drink. He couldn't have a razor touch his hair. And he was not allowed to touch a dead body. Those three external things identified him and set him apart so that he was set apart as one who was different, one who was strange in the eyes of men. But that merely was an external indication of his devotion and consecration to Jehovah God. Through the vow of separation to God, John now stands against all the corruption that's evident in the lives of the people. He preached by example and by word and deed that Israel's safety is in her isolation. He stood against the corruption of the temple worship. He stood against the corruption of the synagogue and all that was going on there. And he now ministers in a very different way. He brings a message that is profoundly different from anything that the other leaders are proclaiming. John's greatness is not so much in the virtues in which he would excel, but the virtue of his office and the place that he would occupy. That is the significance. He would occupy the office of prophet. 
And his ministry would be a ministry that was called to direct the people to the Messiah and to their need for the Messiah. His ministry would be richly blessed by God. And for the sake of it, he would be great. Now John comes then to proclaim the gospel of repentance and true conversion as the only way of entrance into the Messiah's kingdom. His preaching was so contrary to what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were proclaiming that it completely took them off guard. The leaders of the Jews, the common people, were putting their confidence in their earthly genealogy. They were pointing out the fact that they were descendants of Abraham. They had ties to Abraham. Their salvation was because of what they were doing and who they were. They had the promise because of Abraham. They were maintaining the laws. They were going about the processes that were necessary. John now comes with an entirely different message, a message that was even contrary to the expectation of the faithful remnant for the most part. John comes to prepare the way by preaching the coming of the kingdom of heaven as a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom that is established by God through Jesus Christ. And the result of true repentance and conversion would be reconciliation between parents and children. That's striking. Malachi had preached in Malachi 2 of the devastating effect that divorce and mixed marriages would have on family life. Family life was being destroyed, and there was no harmony within the families. Malachi talks about the fact that the Messiah will come, and he will come in order to return the fathers to the children, and the children to their fathers. And that's what's quoted here now in verse 17, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Family life was destroyed. There was no harmony. Through repentance, domestic harmony would result in parents and children coming together in their sorrow, in their confession of sin, and living together now, forgiving one another, and enjoying spiritual harmony. He would bring together those who were separated due to sin. There would be sharp division in other families as Jesus testified to the fact that he came to bring a sword. Some families who had been opposed one to another would now be united in spirit, serving Jehovah in love. And this was the nature of the work of the Messiah. Reconciliation between sinners. Sinners who were odds, bringing them now to understand the wonder of reconciliation. But above all, Reconciliation between a holy and righteous God and sinners. Now God sent this message to Zacharias and Elizabeth that this would be the work of their son. Zacharias and Elizabeth were united by a common faith. They prayed for the realization of Israel's hope. They were both righteous, walking according to the commandments of God. We have their names depicting a marvelous truth concerning the families from which they came, demonstrating the faithful characteristics that were theirs. The Lord remembereth. The morning cometh. That was the meaning of Zacharias. God is my oath. 
The promise is sure. That was the meaning of the name Elizabeth. So that their parents had given them names that set them apart, identifying the fact that in their generations there had been instruction and teaching concerning the promises of God and the Messiah and his return. These godly individuals were waiting. They were praying. They were watching. And they were believing and hoping for that bright ray of joy, for that sunshine to dispel the darkness of the night. Zacharias and Elizabeth would be blessed with the child through whom that great one would be ushered in. Their son would be great in the sight of the Lord, greater than all the Maccabees, greater than all the sons of Herod. He would be greater than all of the prophets. His greatness and his glory would be due to his calling to stretch out his hand and to point to the coming of the light of day, the coming of the Son of Righteousness. He would come as the friend of the bridegroom, not the bridegroom. And he would come to turn the heart of true Israel into the heart of the church of the new dispensation. Those who were under the law, under bondage, would now be given to know the liberty and the freedom of the Spirit. Those who were given over to the daily sacrifices and were going through the routine would now be brought to see the true sacrifice. This is the one of whom all of those earthly sacrifices was a picture. And John would lead the children of the promise out of childhood, out of darkness, through the door, into the light of the day, and into the wonder of salvation in Jesus Christ. Sin would be exposed. Repentance would be set forth. The soul that sins and continues in sin would perish. God would demand punishment for sin. And John would set forth, there's only one escape. There's only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. All sin will be punished with death and hell. And the only way of escape is to be found in Christ. That through him, that punishment was taken away from you and was born by him alone. Now that's the message that John came. A message of repentance for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And beloved, that's the message that needs to be proclaimed today. The church and her preachers today stands as heralds preparing the way for Christ's final return. Christ is coming again. And increasingly, the church world is enamored by an earthly kingdom, earthly expectations with regard to Christ's final kingdom. Enamored with the idea that it's all about man and what man can do and how man is able to accomplish it. Families are torn. Children refuse to honor their parents. Parents abuse and sin against their children. Sin abounds. And men and women believe they can continue unrepentantly in sin without any consequences. Contrary to the expectations of men, even to the church world, we preach a Christ who establishes a spiritual kingdom on the cross and who will return in glory to usher the fullness of that kingdom in the new heaven and earth. We proclaim a church that will never be a mighty earthly institution. The church must remain true to her task, proclaiming the gospel, 
the good news of salvation, the wonder of forgiveness through the blood of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's not the work of the church to make this world a better place to live. The church is not called, first of all, to eliminate all abortion and all evils and poverties and injustices and all of the struggles that characterize the world in which we live. The church is called to be a witness against those sins and against those evils. The church is not called to change the laws, the practices of men. But the church is called to preach the gospel. Proclaim the glorious message of salvation through the blood of the Lamb. To call the believers out of darkness into God's glorious light. And that primary work of the church may never be compromised. The gospel of repentance and the coming of the kingdom of God must be proclaimed in all of its power, in all of its majesty and glory, in order that God's children be brought to repentance and that they look for Christ as the one who is their Savior, their Messiah, from sin. The church must proclaim this message with the boldness with which Elijah and John the Baptist did. Not worrying about what men think. Not worrying about the persecution, the opposition that will come upon them. Pressing on for the glory and honor of Jehovah God. Jesus Christ is coming again. And to the ends of the earth, the message of the wonder of his coming and the judgment that will come upon men must be proclaimed along with the message of salvation through his blood alone. He is coming as judge. He will hold every man, woman, and child accountable for everything that they've done. And his judgment will be righteous. And there's no escaping that judgment. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can accomplish in order to free yourself from the judgment of the righteous king. But we flee. We flee to the arms of the Messiah. And we confess the wonder of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. That there is no sin too great for him to cover. We flee to the arms of the Messiah, confessing that he laid down his life for me. And that as one who confesses him by faith, I believe and I know that through him there is victory. God bless the ministry of John the Baptist toward that end to direct the hearts of his elect people to the coming of the Messiah. Zacharias was, Zechariah was amazed at the words of the angel. He stands in awe. In essence, he says, I don't believe you. People as old as us, we can't be parents. And that's the expression that we find here in Zacharias, from Zacharias in verse 18. Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife well stricken in years. In spite of the examples that had been set before him, in spite of God's faithfulness toward Abraham, toward Gideon, toward Hezekiah, toward so many others, Zacharias is filled with questions. How can this be? How can this be realized? But Gabriel verifies the message by identifying himself. I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God. I am Gabriel. 
And now Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, am sent to speak unto thee and show thee these glad tidings. There's only two angels that are given names in Scripture, Michael and Gabriel. And Gabriel is the one that always brings the message of good news. He now brings that message of glad tidings to Zechariah. Zechariah receives a sign. He becomes deaf and dumb until the day of John's birth. He sinned with his tongue, and now his tongue would not be able to declare the joy and the expectation that was his in response to this glorious message. But God's faithfulness toward his waiting saints is sure. Zacharias and Elizabeth would receive a joy greater than any expectation they could ever have had. Their son would be more to them than they ever dared to expect. He would be a prophet. He would be a teacher unto the people. And through his ministry, men and women would be led to repentance and to the hope of salvation through the Messiah. They will be given to see a need for the Messiah and for his glorious work. So that this son, given to them in their old age, would be used by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. Many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. God from all eternity, according to the sovereign decree of election, had ordained a people whom he would bring into the fullness of his fellowship through Jesus Christ, his own Son. And upon them he set his love. In time, he works regeneration in their hearts. He calls them by his irresistible grace. He gives them the faith by which they respond. The Jews were not looking for the Messiah, but God was preparing his elect remnant for him. The fact that the children of Israel had to be turned to the Lord indicates they had fallen away. And such is the reality of sin, the corruption, The depravity, the disorderliness had been such that they had fallen away from that expectation of salvation in Christ Jesus. The children of Israel needed to know the horror of their sin. They needed to know the fact that salvation was not according to the will of man. And God would bless the labors of this forerunner. God would work through the labor of this prophet a wonder. There would be a revolution of speech, of, of sorts, among the Israelites. They were hearing a message that they had never heard before. And as a result, God would be the one who would stir them up unto repentance and baptism and direct their hope to the Messiah. Today, God continues to sound forth his word. And as that word goes to the ends of the earth, and as that word is sounded forth, God continues to use the gospel to accomplish that wonder, to turn the hearts of men, stubborn and hard, to the Lord and to the wonder of salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, outwardly, preaching can do nothing. Outwardly, preaching has no power. But it's through a wonder of the Holy Spirit that the preaching is turned by God, into an instrument of divine power for the salvation of his church and his children. 
that the preaching is used to accomplish repentance, sorrow for sin. That the preaching is used to work faith in order that individuals lay hold upon Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. God makes that preaching effective unto conversion. Not for all, but unto all those whom God has pleased to call to himself from eternity. Belief comes through hearing and hearing the preaching of Christ crucified. God sent John as the one who would bring that glorious message. For 400 years, the people had not heard a message of repentance, of the necessity of turning from sin, of the wonder of forgiveness and joy through the Messiah. But now God sent John to make a people ready, whom God already had prepared for himself. And John would bring them to know that wonder and that joy, that eternal hope. And God would use his preaching to accomplish the purpose that God had ordained. And then he would baptize. John the baptizer. And through baptism, a sign of the washing away of their sins, he would direct them to the one who alone was able to cleanse them. Through whose blood they would be washed and cleansed. So that when Jesus came... What was John's response? Behold the Lamb of God. He directed the people to the Lamb who would take away the sins of the world. He directed them to the Messiah, the one who would be their Savior and their Lord. A people who were stubborn, a people who were unwilling to be taught, now look beyond the institutions of men, refuse to put their confidence in man, And look to Christ, God, with man, who alone would be able to accomplish that wonder and that salvation. Beloved, God, by his work of grace in our hearts, directs us by his spirit to know our sin, to confess that sin in true repentance, and directs us to the coming of the Messiah. The preaching is not to extol men, not to extol salvation, through man, or according to man's works? God uses the preaching to direct us to this question. Sir, we would see Jesus. What is your greatest need? What is my greatest need? A Savior who would deliver us from our sins. And beloved, we fall on our knees. We repent and we behold the Lamb of God. By faith we lay hold on Him and we believe in Him. And we know the joy the wonder of our salvation. All my sins, every last one of them, he paid for. He accomplished what I could never do. And the result now is that I am able to know life everlasting. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for the wonder of the Savior. And we thank thee for the means that thou dost use in order to direct us to him in order that we might know our joy and our salvation in the one who represented us and the one for whom we live. Lord, soften our hard hearts. Destroy all the institutions of men and the desires to esteem our own works, our own ways, and cause that we, with thy saints of old, might know the joy and the wonder of Emmanuel, God with us, who brings about true reconciliation 
in order that we might live with thee now and to all eternity. This we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.